Support for WMFE comes from JustCallMo.com, an attorney, Mo DeWitt, proud presenter of WMFE's Engage program. Mo DeWitt is committed to offering legal guidance in personal injury cases, such as car accidents and slip and falls. Offices in Orlando. More at JustCallMo.com. Welcome to Engage, leading conversations that matter. Engage explores Central Florida's issues and culture with new voices, new perspectives, and thought-provoking interviews. Engage is made possible with the support of members like you and inaugural sponsor, JustCallMo.com. Engage is hosted by Sharon Stone. You are listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. Coming up, the state of Florida presents their case against social media giants before the Supreme Court. We'll look at the use of algorithms in community policing, and an Orlando girl creates her own media empire. First, though, following the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, Florida and Texas both passed laws restricting the ability of social media providers to control posted content on their sites. Now, lawmakers argued that companies like Facebook, X, it's formerly Twitter, and YouTube were censoring posts from conservative users limiting conservative messaging on the platforms. The parent companies Meta, Google, and Snap, the owner of Snapchat, contend that they don't censor conservative voices, just inappropriate content. First Amendment advocates point to the fact that these are private companies. They can set whatever rules they would like regarding who and what is posted on their platforms. Yesterday, social media trade groups NetChoice and the Computer and Communications Industry Association challenged the Florida and Texas laws all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where arguments were laid out before the justices. Amy Howe is a Supreme Court analyst and owner of the blog Howe on the Court. She listened to the hearing yesterday and joined us to parse out the arguments. She started by summarizing the arguments made by the state's attorneys. The main thrust of their argument is that when the social media companies moderate content or in their words censor so there was a lot of a little bit of semantics going on you know when they either take down content or they deprioritize content that that's not speech and therefore it's not protected by the first amendment and so they try to put these laws in sort of two boxes of Supreme Court content, so to speak. The Supreme Court has one line of cases that involves sort of hosting other people's speech. You know, uh, the Supreme Court has said that a shopping mall owner has to allow, even though it's private property, has to allow high school students to come on the property and hand out leaflets. The Supreme Court has said that the federal government can require law schools to allow military recruiters to come on campus for a job fair or face the loss of federal funding. Um, Then there's another, so they said it's like that, that the tech companies are hosting other people's speech. They're not speaking themselves. And then there's another box of cases that involve what's called common carriers, telephone and telegraph companies that are just essentially exactly what it says, carrying messages, and that the, those companies can't discriminate uh, 
and who gets to carry the messages or whose messages get to go through and what the content of those messages are. And so the states were saying that these laws fit into those boxes and therefore the Supreme Court should uphold them. And conversely, what arguments did the tech groups challenging these laws make? So they're trying to put their conduct into a different set of boxes, so to speak. They are comparing what they do, what they say, when we moderate content, if we take somebody's content down or we deprioritize content, that is us exercising our editorial judgment, uh, the same as the New York Times op-ed uh, page. You know, you, we get to the New York Times op-ed page gets to decide what letters to the editor appears on that page. Fox News gets to decide who's on Fox News. And that is, in fact, the speech that's protected by the First Amendment. And so the Supreme Court has a line of cases about exercising your editorial judgment. The Supreme Court has said that the organizers of a St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston can exclude an LGBTQ group that wanted to march in the parade. The Supreme Court has said that a newspaper in Miami is not required to give equal time to a political candidate after the newspaper criticizes that political candidate, that the newspaper gets to exercise its editorial judgment. And so the social media companies are saying this is the exact same thing. Will you talk to us about some of the takeaways that you were able to glean from the justices line of questioning that you heard? So there seemed to be a majority of the justices that were skeptical of these laws as they applied to the large social media companies that were sympathetic to the idea that these large social media companies are exercising editorial discretion. You know, the, the lawyer represent, representing the tech companies in both of the cases, Paul Clement said, you know, that we need to be able to keep anti-Semitic content, uh, pro-bullying content, content that would harm children off of the internet. And, you know, these laws would keep us from being able to do that. You know, there were a couple of justices, Justice Samuel Alito, Justice Clarence Thomas in particular, who did seem to compare, much like the, the states, what the, the platforms are doing when they take down content to censorship. But they seem to be outnumbered by other justices of, you know, both ideological stripes. In reading your blog, I noticed that there was some concern brought up by the justices that they may not be able to weigh in on the Florida law at all. Can you explain that? Yes. So the tech companies in both cases are arguing not just that the law is unconstitutional as it applies to them, but the law is unconstitutional, you know, as applied to everyone in, in all cases, what's called a facial challenge. It's a technical term. Um, and so, as I said, a majority on the Supreme Court seemed sympathetic to the idea that when you apply this law to large social media companies like Facebook X, the company formerly known as Twitter, YouTube, it does raise serious constitutional problems. But there was a concern, particularly with, with the Florida case, that the law is very broad and could also potentially apply to other social media companies, other websites 
that might not engage in the same sort of content moderation that the large social media companies do. But they they displayed a fair amount of tech savvy, to be fair, on Monday, noting that companies like Uber and Etsy and Gmail, Facebook Marketplace could also potentially be covered by the Florida law. And because this case is coming, these cases are coming to them in a relatively early stage. You know, the neither of the laws has actually gone into effect yet in Florida or in Texas. In both cases, trade groups representing the tech companies went to court to block it. And so the question before the court is really about the enforcement of the law in its early stages. And then, you know, we'll sort of hash out the details later, how the law might also apply to these companies and what the justices should do about that. And so it seemed like the court could issue a pretty narrow ruling that keeps the law on hold for now, particularly as applied to the tech companies, but sends the case back to the lower courts for the lower courts to try to figure out, you know, what other companies might also be affected by this ruling and how they should rule on those cases, those scenarios. What do you expect next for them? Where does this lead the justices in terms of a timeline? Yeah, so you know, it is now the end of February. This is a high-profile case. The justices generally issue all of their decisions by the end of June or early July uh, before they take their summer recess. I would be surprised given both, you know, that this is not going to be necessarily a case that is a unanimous decision. I think it'll be a a, a complicated one for them to write. And they've also just got a lot of other things going on right now. They've got the case involving Colorado's efforts to kick Donald Trump off of the ballot. You know, they've got some big cases coming up involving abortion. They have a big, you know, gun rights case that they're already working on. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a decision that uh, didn't come down until June and possibly even late June. And you also wouldn't be surprised if it's not unanimous? I would not be surprised if it is not unanimous. You know, know, there was Justices Alito and Thomas definitely expressed support for the laws, you know, they were referring to it a couple of times as, as, as censorship, whereas uh, many of the other justices, on the other hand, sort of either you know, suggested that that this case did fall into the, the sort of box of cases involving expressive activity that is protected by the First Amendment, you know, talking about, uh, you know, censorship, you know, referring to the idea that uh, you know, only the government can censor, that, that private parties can't censor. And so there did seem to be a fair amount of skepticism, if not unanimous skepticism, about the laws. Okay. So was there a divergence between a conservative and liberal sides of the bench within the skepticism that you heard? Uh, no, it's not necessarily one that's going to break down on, on ideological lines. You know, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, you know, are certainly two of the court's most conservative justices. But, you know, and Justice Neil Gorsuch, who's also one of the court's most conservative justices, you know, not quite sure where he'll he'll land on this. But, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, you know, seemed uh, pretty skeptical of the laws, you know, also a member of the courts, you know, six, six member conservative block. 
So it's not necessarily one that's going to be a, a, an ideologically divided case. That's Amy Howe, proprietor of the blog site Howe on the Court. Ahead here on Engage, we'll look at controversial software that's been used in police departments in Florida and throughout the country. I'm Sharon Stone. You're listening to Engage 90.7 WMFE. This is Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. We are streaming live now online, and we want to hear from you. Send us an email at engage at WMFE.org. Ahead on this program, when Summer Strawberry was bullied in school, she turned that experience into an opportunity. I created my first coloring book, Black, Brown, and Beautiful, and it has impacted girls all over the world, and I encourage them to have basically the same routine as me to read these affirmations before they go to school and before they go to sleep. Summer and her father share their story of successfully publishing books about positivity and inclusivity. First, there are bills moving through both chambers of the Florida State House that would require instruction about communism to K-12 public school students. This initiative is not a relic of the Cold War. It passed its last committee in the Florida Senate just this afternoon before it heads to the full Senate. Here's Republican State Senator Jay Collins of Tampa defending the bill he introduced. You know, I understand there's some questions about our bill talking about teaching the truth of communism. You know, this isn't about race, creed, color, gender. It has nothing to do with that. This is about hatred. We should hate communism. There is no good that comes from communism. Hundreds of millions dead because of the pain and suffering associated with it. Nations left in ruin. What I think is hurtful is ignoring that pain and suffering from the over 2 million Cubans in the state of Florida, the hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans, former Soviet bloc, the Chinese, the Korean, and the Vietnamese, they ran to the United States looking for freedom because of the horrors of communism. That's hurtful. We have to tell the truth and teach our children not to follow in those footsteps. We stand for freedom we can't allow communism to take hold in this free state of Florida. The Reverend Rhonda Thomas is the executive director of Faith in Florida. That's a coalition of area congregations and community organizations. Reverend Thomas says requiring instruction on the history of communism is an attempt to indoctrinate children. She also called it a missed opportunity to teach black history. She joined us earlier to talk about her concerns, and I started the conversation by asking her what part of changes to education curriculum surprise her the most. It's a constant change in the teaching in public schools, but what's most shocking for me in the organization that I work for is the change in the way our educators was once teaching Black history, how legislation was passed, to teach a diluted version because some had looked at the version that was being taught was offending white children. And so that was just shocking and crazy because I just had more confidence in the professionalism of all educators that they would never teach any curriculum that would intentionally offend any children. 
I'm not alone, even on the levels of our higher education, how that they were impacted as well in the teaching of Black history. And I just think that some of our lawmakers should really, really allow our educators to do their job because they went to school and have been trained to act as professionals. And even if it's Black history, it is still history. And what are you hearing from maybe students or parents or your ministry? Students has a lot to do with their age on what we're hearing or not hearing. I want to give an example of a group of kids that's in Florida in Ocoee who understood what took place with the massacre with Black people in Ocoee, Florida, where so many people um, was murdered because they were registering to vote and Black people were not allowed. They did not move back into Ocoee until 1985. And to know that that massacre and what took place with Black people trying to register to vote impacted the teaching of their own rich history. And to see those kids on, I don't remember what national news station, whether it was CNN or MSNBC, say that if our educators cannot teach our history, we will take it upon ourselves to teach and learn our own history. So that impacted our students. Then to hear educators who no longer want to teach because of the impact that it's leaving on them, it's bad enough they're not making the salaries they deserve. And then to come and meddle in their business of the way they teach is just just crazy. You know, I often wonder myself how many lawmakers actually have a degree in education. Probably not many. And then when it comes to the church, and I want to use, for example, the black church had a level of education taught in the church, whether it's black history, whether it's through the scriptures, because we're so creative. We teach through dance. We teach through music. And so that impact of meddling into our educators' business in their way of their own profession is unheard of. I just can't believe we're we're even living in this time. And tell me about the Black History Toolkit. The Black History Toolkit was a response to legislative session. It was created to continue to be taught and not a diluted version because the black church still has history that sits in the pews that have lived a life of some of the history that is being talked about. And so we created a toolkit that would be a resource for faith leaders to choose to teach black history. The faith leader themselves do not have to teach it, but it's such a variety of talent and gifts that's in our congregations that can teach black history, whether it's from a book, whether it's from their own personal life, their own personal experience or story, um, whether it's from a music art, because that's, that's just the way we operate. And then we also understand and realize that that toolkit can be used 
not just for children. It can be used regardless of what age you are. And, and we were very intentional about making sure that the toolkit consisted of resources for even those who don't go to church. And I want to use for an example, when we created the toolkit, a couple of chaplains from prisons called and say, I love your toolkit. We want to teach from your toolkit inside of the prison. And so it just went beyond how our schools, public schools have been targeted. It just went back to the church going back to what we once did as, as a norm. And so when we think back during the civil rights movement, how powerful the church was, where so many, whether it was a elected official, whether it was the community, when they needed anything done, they went to the church. And the church and the way we occupied and keeping our congregation and the community abreast of what was going on, the church became a threat. That's why we were bombed. That's why we were set on fire. We had that kind of power just in teaching our own communities and members. And so we're like, let's go back to that. Why did we ever stop? So one of the great things that has happened from the toolkit as united churches across not just the state of Florida, but across the country, we have 29 other states that have signed up to use our toolkit. And so my vision was not to go out of Florida, but it just shows how important the teaching of black history continues in an effective way and not a diluted way. Black people have never benefited from being a slave. Never. And so we have to teach and we have to be intentional in teaching our own rich heritage and the greatness that we come from. It goes back to teaching before slavery. How many people in the Bible were black people? How many knew that the King James Version, King James himself owned slaves? And so it has united us. We have white congregations that also signed up. Um, these white, uh, our white congregations understood that we could never teach black history like the black church, but we can teach it in a way of accountability. You mentioned that this is a response to what is happening, what Florida lawmakers are doing. Right now, the House and Senate bills requiring lessons about history and communism in public schools are being considered. Why are you expressing grave concern about these bills? My concern is if you're going to teach history, let's teach it. Don't dilute one version and then adopt another. Are you going to dilute how communism impact people? Will it be taught in a way of celebration? And so I felt like I have no idea if it was intentional, but if the teaching of black history was leaving a negative impact and making white children feel bad. Well, guess what? Maybe communism might make black children feel bad. In fact, it's making me feel bad. The thought of you want to erase one and adopt another. I just really believe that if you are successful in 
trying to erase black history, that gives you more space to try to erase the future of black people. So why don't we not mess with history and why don't we not mess with our future either? Because it seems like the two can be tied together. If you're able to erase one, then you can also have the potentials of erasing our future. And so communism, it is history. And it is still a thing. And not to weigh one more, you know, one has more priority than the other. I probably would have never thought much of communism being taught from kindergarten to 12th grade. Not that I understand why a kindergarten would want to know anything about communism. But at the same time, our legislators see that as a reason for it. If you had not tampered with the teaching of black history, communism probably would have never left an impact on me at all. But you're literally trying to erase one. Reverend Rhonda Thomas is the executive director of Faith in Florida. We had invited Senator Collins to join us. After getting initial approval from his staff, we lost contact with his office. In 2015, the Orange County Sheriff's Office adopted a software package that would allow the department to streamline the process of creating patrol maps for their officers. The software was called Predpol. It used previous reports of crimes to create maps that would predict the next location of a crime. The Orange County Sheriff's Office used it for about three years before scrapping it. The Cocoa Police Department also gave it a test run before passing on it, as did Ocoee Police. And we reached out to the fourth department in Central Florida, Ocala Police. We did not get a response. Critics of this software say it uses incomplete data to determine these patrol patterns, which usually end up in concentrated, low-income neighborhoods of communities of color. That using Predpol just perpetuates a police presence in these select communities. Last month, a group of seven U.S. senators, none from Florida, signed a letter appealing to the Department of Justice to stop providing grants to law enforcement agencies to subscribe to this PredPoll program. Aaron Sankin is an investigative reporter with The Markup, and he's been analyzing and reporting on the use of PredPoll since 2021. He joined us to break down the software, and he started the conversation by explaining how PredPoll actually works. So PredPoll, or as it later rebranded as Geolitica, is a company that is primarily known for doing predictive policing. And predictive policing is the idea that if you take historical crime data about crime reports either generated by police officers as they're driving around or from members of the public calling 911, if you take that data and then feed it into an algorithm, you will then have an idea as to where crimes are most likely to happen in the future. And if you have that understanding, a law enforcement agency can then send police officers to those locations and then dissuade crime from ever happening in the first place. So the general idea behind predictive policing, at least the sort of place-based predictive policing, is essentially resource management and trying to steer police officers into the locations where they could have the kind of most dramatic effect. Is that something all departments use, this kind of predictive policing software? Well, it's definitely not a universal. I don't think we really had a sense of exactly how widely it was used. We were able to identify about three dozen police departments based on the data we had that at one time used this. 
But I think, you know, this is kind of like a more complicated mechanism for something that police officers, I think, across the country have been doing for, for generations, which is thinking about and identifying the places where crimes tend to congregate and then spending more of their time patrolling there. What this does, I think, in a lot of ways is kind of circumvent officers having to do that thinking or having to do that sort of analysis and just saying, you know, the program says go here or the program says go there. So, Aaron, what kind of crimes specifically is uh, PredPol talking about? So there was a whole bunch of different crimes that we identified being predicted by the software. And it was everything from like car thefts to aggravated assaults. And the idea is that they should be crimes that, you know, a police officer's presence could, you know, just by being there could dissuade. We did find some police departments attempting to predict things like sexual assault, which, you know, the founders of the company advised departments not to use because, you know, those happen often indoors, those happen in private places. So it's not really the best usage of that software. But the idea is that if any crime that is distributed geographically could theoretically be predicted using this method. PredPol uses reported crime data, not crime data. Is that a significant difference? Well, yeah. So the issue is that there is a huge number of crimes that are not reported to police every year. And the Bureau of Justice Statistics um, does surveys every year and finds that large, something like 40% of crimes in many cases are not reported to police. And I think one of the issues is that reporting um, crimes to police relative to crime being crime victimizations are not equal by demographic groups. Black and Latino folks are more likely to report crime at higher rates. Lower income folks are more likely to report crime at higher rates. And I think what that does is it creates a bit of a skew in the data that is these algorithms can only really make assessments based on the data they have. And if the data they have is, you know, not is crimes that are not reported equally, they're going to make more predictions in predominantly non-white areas and predominantly lower income areas outside of kind of the underlying crime rate that exists in different neighborhoods in a given city. Did you find any research about the accuracy or maybe the credibility of PredPol? So we had last year released a follow-up investigation looking at accuracy. And essentially what we did is we uh, looked at one city, uh, Plainfield, New Jersey, and matched up the predictions that we got to crime reports. And what we found is essentially overwhelmingly the predictions did not line up to actual crimes. I think it was less than 1% of predictions matched up with a reported crime. Now, caveat here, a lot of crimes are not reported. But I think what that shows is the way that it was used in Plainfields, and I think the way that this stuff is used in uh, many cities across the country, is that it's often sending police officers to places where crime would not have otherwise occurred. Even before you did the follow-up about accuracy, can you kind of take me back to 2021, some of the findings that you had after studying PredPol? Yeah. So essentially what we did is we took all of the uh, crime reports that we found on a server linked off of the LAPD's website. And then we matched them up to demographics. And we were saying, which communities are getting the heaviest share of predictions? And what we found is, you know, not in every single case, but in most cases in the 38 cities that we looked at, 
we found that the areas that saw the most predictions were predominantly non-white areas, like predominantly African-American areas, predominantly Latino areas, areas that were lower socioeconomic status, areas that had a lot of public housing facilities. So for example, one of the places that we looked at was Cocoa, Florida, which used a geolytica system. And what we found is that every single one of the city's public housing facilities were in the 10% of the city that received the most predictions. So it was things like that where they tended to be concentrated in these sorts of socioeconomically marginalized areas. There was a lot of conversation and talking to people in these communities about, you know, over-policing and under-policing and what is the correct ideal amount of policing that each neighborhood should get. And I think what we kind of found here is that what these systems tend to do is just send police officers back to the areas they were already going. And so if you're trying to get a system, theoretically, I think the idea behind the, like a lot of these systems is that in its ideal sense, it's going to take individual bias out of these systems, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you are concerned that individual police officers are kind of patrol based on their biases about where they think crime is, have ceding that decision-making to something supposedly objective might be more fair. But I think we saw that the places that got the most predictions also tended to have the most arrests. So I think what this is doing is really replicating the policing patterns that were already in place. So I think that's part of that conversation that needs to happen inside of communities where they're like, what sorts of policing do we want? Do we want more patrols in our area? Do we want less patrols in our area? Do we want officers doing different things? So I think all of that is an important conversation that needs to be had at that local level. And so I think what we were trying to do is just shine a light on what happens if you bring in this sort of like algorithmic resource management into the system is that, you know, it's, doesn't appear to be shifting what is happening in a pretty significant way. I'm wondering if you were surprised by the findings. Not particularly. I mean, I think the issues around these systems tending to target marginalized neighborhoods was something that advocates and criminal justice reformers and critics of this sorts of technologies had been saying for a long time. So essentially what we were doing is being able to really kind of put hard numbers, hard data behind that. But this was kind of the sense from a lot of people who were very skeptical of this technology. And there was other work that had been done previously that took the same algorithm because the algorithm about how these predictions are assigned was published by the authors in a scientific paper. And they took that algorithm and used it to show, uh, taking in taking in like regular crime data and were able to show something very similar in the city of Berkeley, California. So I don't think I was particularly surprised, but that's because this was building on the work that a lot of other folks had done in this area that was all kind of pointing in the same direction. Tell me about some of the responses from law enforcement agencies to your findings. Well, it was really interesting. Um, one of the th- one of the things that I was pretty surprised by is we reached out to every single one of these police departments and sheriff's offices that we found using this software. And we were just kind of like, what are you, what did did you like it? Did you not like it? How did you use it? And we expected to get a lot more defenses of it than we did. We only got like a small handful who were like, yeah, this is great. This is useful for us. It helps us. A lot of the departments said, we had this for a while and we stopped using it because, you know, I think it comes back to, for a lot of police officers that I spoke with, they felt it was a bit of a de-skilling issue 
They were like, I live in this community. I patrol this community all the time. I don't need a computer to tell me where people get mugged. I know where people get mugged. It's outside of the bar that closes at 2 a.m. in the alley that doesn't have like a lot of lighting. That's where people get mugged. So like I saw a lot of police departments who were like, you know, we tried this. It was worth a shot and it didn't really live up to what we wanted to do. And I think that also, in a way, was reflected by the company itself. So after a while, the company kind of pivoted to doing more patrol management of saying, hey, what we have here is not just predictive policing. What we have is a tool that allows department officials to monitor where their officers are going, to show where they're patrolling, because in order to kind of you know keep track of the accuracy of all this stuff, they're collecting all this data. As they, they rebranded, the company was originally called PredPol which, you know, shortened for predictive policing, into Geolytica, which is more about saying, this is a platform for you to manage your patrol operations. So I think there's a sense that that might be a more useful tool. And I think it's also in a lot of ways, a much less controversial tool of just, you know, helping these institutions like manage their workforce and manage their resources a little bit more effectively. Unsurprisingly, PredPol was critical of your analysis. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate as to their response? Yeah. So I think like, you know, we sent their, uh, them their whole, whole methodology and showed them all the data and they went back and forth. And I think, you know, as as academics, they engaged with all of our questions and had pushback and had a lot of references. And I think, you know, they, they, had, a, they had a lot of like qualms with it. But I think fundamentally, if you really get right down to it, their argument is essentially is that these predictions are based on crime data. They're not based on arrests. Police officers don't arrest everyone they see at the same rate for doing the same things. And they're just based on reports made from the public. So this data is equitable. Their argument is that if these communities, if certain communities had more predictions, it's because there was more crime reports being made in those communities. So those communities probably like wanted more patrols. So I think fundamentally that would be their argument as to the issues around inequitable distribution of predictions. And they did not respond when uh, to our subsequent investigation about the accuracy. We sent them questions and all the data and they just didn't respond. But at that point, the company was in the process of shutting down. It shut down at the end of last year and transferred some of its resources, although not its predictive policing algorithm, to a law enforcement tech company called Sound Thinking. There's a letter that was... Uh dated January 24th of this year to the DOJ from seven lawmakers addressing this. Any thoughts on why they're just now addressing this? So this has been a ongoing project for a number of lawmakers, and this is kind of an effort led by uh, Senator Ron Wyden out of Oregon. And they have been, you know, hounding for a number of years, hounding the DOJ to say, how much money have you given to police departments to spend on predictive policing programs. And they've been asking this over and over. And the DOJ has in the past said, you know, we haven't really been able to track. We can't say with any surety how many police departments have bought these sorts of softwares using our money. But, you know, we were able to identify, you know, I think nearly a dozen law enforcement agencies that had used some sort of grant from the DOJ for some sort of predictive policing work, you know, and wider and more widely in the federal government, like some of the early research 
on the some of the technology that was eventually incorporated into uh, geolitica was funded by the national science foundation so what these lawmakers were asking the department of justice to halt all future funding on predictive policing programs until the department has put checks in place to make sure that whatever systems it is giving money for are non-discriminatory and also are effective in identifying and then reducing crime Aaron Sankin is an investigative reporter with The Markup. Up next, we meet a young entrepreneur who turned a case of bullying into an opportunity for success. Engage is available on demand at WMFE.org, the mobile app, or anywhere you get your podcast. Listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. Summer Strawberry's resume is really impressive. Speaker, author, illustrator, business consultant. She's also a 14-year-old student in Central Florida. She shares her story to help girls improve their self-confidence and mental health, but her work is reaching women of all ages. The Orlando teen and her father Everett joined Engage to talk about the power of positive affirmations. Summer started the discussion by describing how it all started for her. I really started because I was being bullied at school, and it really affected my self-esteem over time. So kids would talk about my tooth being crooked, kids would say that my fingers were long and skinny, and I know it affected me because my dad pointed out that I would stop smiling, showing my teeth for pictures, and I didn't realize that because I thought the kids were joking about like everything that was going on. And once he was, he noticed my self-esteem was decreasing because I used to be confident I would like dance all the time in front of people in public I was really confident but once those kids started affecting my like internal thoughts and myself then I was less confident so he introduced me to positive affirmations I would be required to read it before I went to school and before I went to sleep because once you read it daily like your subconscious mind is filled with positivity and positive thoughts to block out negative thoughts And then over time, I created my first coloring book, Black, Brown, and Beautiful. And it has impacted girls all over the world. And I encourage them to have basically the same routine as me to read these affirmations before they go to school and before they go to sleep. So if there's like kids that are saying things that are negative, they could basically block them out and basically ignore them. And then over time, I came up with the affirmations, I am Black, Brown, and Beautiful. I'm confident. I'm a winner. I'm a leader. And I'm fearless. Something that struck me that this is obviously like a wonderful goal, but you also have just data to back it up. You're doing research to help girls as well. Can you talk about that? Exactly. Yes. So I've done some research on girls or children that were committing suicide. And this was all because of bullying situations that they were being introduced to at school. And there's also research that I've found that There was a child that was as young as first grade that committed suicide due to bullying. And it's basically like he was being called like racial slurs and everything. And um, these kids were once confident, but because they went to school without any like coping mechanisms or they didn't tell anybody that they were being bullied because they feel like it would be like embarrassing or something like that. Or they would be too scared to like tell a parent or a guardian or a teacher or a counselor about their situation that they committed suicide because they felt like there was 
no place to go to or they weren't being introduced to anything that would help them build their confidence back because they probably were once confident and then it was just like all taken away. Have you gotten your confidence back through this process? Yeah, I've, I have. I think even um, when my dad introduced me to affirmations and then I like when I was 12, I started my business. So I think over time since... Um, being 12 years old to 14 now, I think my confidence has definitely increased. Speaking at schools and nonprofits um, allowed me to, like, practice my um, speaking because when I was younger, I would, I think I was still shy, but I was confident at the same time. It was kind of like a mix. But now since I'm interacting with other people who may have went through bullying or a similar situation as me, then I'm able to relate to them and feel more confident. And Summer, what do you hear from kids about your work? Well, I hear from kids and their parents that these affirmations have helped them. They enjoy the books. Uh, I have some people that reach out to me again and show like their fin finished product um, when they're finished coloring my books. And it's really exciting to me. Um, and I feel like the parents are have like another thing that it's like kind of like a mental health thing as well and uh, a strategy for them to like come home and have like an activity to do. Like there's a coloring part of the book but another aspect of the book is the affirmations that's the most important part that's what I basically tell them and I've heard a lot that it helped the girls build their confidence and feel more confident I'm looking at one of your books now and it says it's part of the black brown and beautiful series so we're not just talking about coloring books fashion accessories and you're actually a business consultant how did it grow into such a kind of a budding empire Yes, yeah, so I have three books in total. My first book called Black, Brown, and Beautiful, Girls of All Different Shapes and Sizes, Different Abilities. We have we have a girl in a wheelchair, girl with a prosthetic leg, but it says they are complete and they still have freedom because I wanted to include everybody and not feel left out. My second book, Glow Up, this one is in six different languages, including English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Haitian Creole, and Swahili, and showing that black and, black and Hispanic people were all over the world. We speak thousands of languages, and I wanted younger girls who may be black or Hispanic to know that as well. Like, we're not just in one place. We're not just in, like, Africa or South America, but we're all over the world world and how it happened and then also my third book my career glow up is where girls can start being interested in different careers that are out there and available for them um, and also representation for black and hispanic girls in different careers such as like a supreme court justice film director entrepreneur so they can start being getting into um, these different careers and having finding mentors to help them as well and also my new children's picture book that came out. It's called Black, Brown, Beautiful, Bullied. It's a story of me being bullied and introduced to affirmations. So it's in a format where these children can know what bullying is, like know the signs and um, how they can help themselves. Since we're talking about your books, are there any that you could share the affirmations maybe that, you know, are some of your favorites or can you just share some with us? Yeah, so I said some earlier, um, Black, Brown, and Beautiful, I'm Confident, Another one is I love myself. And um, I mean, there's a lot of great affirmations. There's a variety of affirmations. I also think I'm sassy is a cool one as well. Because, um, I mean, there's a lot of confidence affirmations in here. And I think it's like where girls can relate to each and every one. I've been sitting here listening to your 14-year-old just amaze me. What's it like as her father? What's your reaction to listening to your daughter? Well, it's great to see the transformation that she's uh, developed into over the course of time. 
you know, I, I knew that she had it within herself as a youngster, but that was suppressed, you know, in the situation that was happening at school. So it's good to see that affirmations, which really, again, as she stated before, it really gets it down into your subconscious mind. The subconscious mind is your automatic thinking about how you feel about yourself. And so how you feel about yourself, it usually stems from your youth. So even adults, they move and they do certain patterns and habits and they view themselves based upon however their experiences were as a child, good and bad. And so subconsciously as an adult, they begin to move certain ways. And so to see her come back to uh, who she was and even surpass that, I'm very confident that even though know, she's 14, she's going to be a, a woman one day. And so that's how I look at it, that she's going to be a productive citizen and giving back to her community through her talks and through her experience. And she's pretty much done that this far, but it's, it's not over yet. And the great thing is, is that she's not only changed her life, but also the lives of many girls across the nation. Um, I'd also note that people that buy our books are black, white, Hispanic, Asian. Everyone is buying it because this is universal. Affirmations are universal. It doesn't matter what the title of the book says. Is But however, uh, the fact that you're building up your self-confidence and your self-esteem through repetition. You are 14 and you have all this stuff going on. Like, how do you balance it all? I mean, it's pretty easy for me um, with school and business. Um, I'm also like kind of, it's like a flex um, type of situation where I go to school for four classes and then um, I take three online classes. So it's easier for me to balance that. Um, and I have, I'm like an AB student, so it's pretty easy for me. Um, and then I come home. And then I, I feel like I need to go straight to business and finish, like, everything for my business. And then um, when I have time, which is a lot of time, like, I can go in between um, school and business. So I, it's pretty easy for me. Yeah. That's all for today's edition of Engage. We'll be back Thursday at 3 o'clock. I'm Sharon Stone. Thanks for joining us. All Things Considered is coming up following NPR News. NPR News.